Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. I'm joined by Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing, and this is our 100th podcast. 100. 100. Woo! Yeah, 100. Balloons so we've been doing this for fireworks. a little a little less than 2 years and we got 100 episodes. That's that's pretty awesome. I think that's that's moving out and uh, we've had some great episodes. Uh you know, we were just sort of recounting before we started the show here. Uh, what comes to mind for you when you think of uh, the highlights in terms of the episodes we've done? Yeah, well, we've done so many good ones. I, I had was thinking this uh, as we were sort of uh, chatting about our 100 episodes. And, you know, that's a lot of different uh, guests, a lot of proceedings articles. And we started this two years ago as just another way uh, to bring proceedings content to light. Uh, you know, podcasts are the, the most popular and growing um, form of, uh, you know, media these days. People are, you know, consuming podcasts uh, everywhere they go. And, you know, I see people with their, you know, headphones on on the, on the metro or wherever they're listening to podcasts. Well, one of my daughters runs a podcast up in New York City. Um, but it's been great for that, right, to give uh, an opportunity for proceedings authors to talk about their article. And so in that vein, um, I loved the conversation we had just a week ago or so with uh, Second Lieutenant James Winnefeld, L.J. Winnefeld, who wrote about how the Marine Corps could use the littoral combat ships of the Navy uh, in in a way that would make uh, sort of a cavalry option, right, for the Marine Corps. So for the Mew, you got a couple of big heavy ships moving sort of ponderously, um, but you could use LCSs with some a smaller unit of Marines and some Cobras or something and come in as a cavalry unit and hit, hit from the the flanks or the sides or, you know, dash and go kind of operations. I thought that was cool. And then the one, the star power one for me was when we had uh, John Lehman, the former secretary of the Navy, who was SecNav when we were here as midshipmen and then as junior officers, the guy that was the architect of the 600-ship Navy under President Reagan. Uh, and I, I always thought of him as probably the you know the best secretary of the Navy we've had in, in my lifetime. Oh, yeah. You know, he's certainly the highest visibility secretary. And Definitely. And certainly a bold personality. And yeah. That was a great get. Um, for me, I think what comes to mind is uh, the, the one we just did with Admiral Carter on his departure as superintendent at the end of his Navy career, the one we did with that same week with Admiral Stavridis. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the early days, uh, the one we did with, uh, with Admiral Alcoin right after he uh, left 7th Fleet um, sort of quickly and talking about the comprehensive review with him. That was news breaking, that right. conversation, very candid. And you remember um, we sort of had to earn his trust about uh, this format and, and he warmed to it. And it was a fantastic use of the podcast. And then the one we did with Admiral Mullen um, a few weeks after that was, you know, equally uh, rewarding and fun. And so this started as just something we, we, tr- we try it and see what it was. Um, and, uh, there was some pushback in the building and, and, uh, about the, doing this and what is it and what does the editorial board do about it and so forth and so on. And we just sort of persisted. I'd like to thank the audience for their part in growing the numbers associated with the number of listens we have each episode. Um, and, uh, from time to time, this podcast has even been sponsored by a real sponsor, uh, so this is a thing, and it's part of the product suite of the Naval Institute now, and uh, we expect to do nothing but grow it. As we've mentioned before, we're headed to Tailhook here next week, and we're going to talk to upwards of half a dozen folks 
on the podcast while we're out there. Yeah, so at the convention floor. It's just something we do, and, right. and we're very happy and proud, and uh, you know, thanks to our guests, and uh, and we'll just keep going. It's a lot yep. of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, so let's get to our guest for today. So our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Ward. He wrote an article that's in the August issue of Proceedings, starts on page 62. It's called The Influence of Sea Power Upon China. Uh, so it starts off with uh, China sees its defensive frontiers under Xi Jinping very differently than it did at the People's Republic's founding. The United States and its allies need to understand the differences. So Dr. Ward, welcome and uh, thanks for joining us on the Proceedings Podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining us for the celebration. Lucky 100. Yeah, lucky 100. Jonathan, um, tell us a little bit, just the 50,000-foot the, the view of your, of your article. You start off and you talk a little bit about uh, the, the founding of the People's Republic of China uh, as a land power and how over time, as its economy has grown, its need for a navy has also grown. Right. So my article is basically about the way in which sea power is becoming an important sort of um, foundation to the expansion of China's global power, and also how that interacts with the vision at the heart of the founding of the People's Republic of China, which was a vision that essentially said China had been humiliated at the hands of other empires, this was back in the 19th century, and that now China will restore its former power. They call it today the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, and what it really means is they, they will ultimately become in this century the dominant power um, in world affairs. Um, so sea power is an incredibly important piece of this, not least of which is because trade and sea power are so intimately linked. I mean, China today, in a way that was not at all um, the case under Mao Zedong um, or any of the early PRC founders, uh, China today is the dominant um, nation in terms of uh, total global trade, and they're building in a military that's meant to service this globalization of the Chinese economy. And of course, this is also incredibly dangerous for the United States and for our allies. China's vision of world order is completely different from the one that we hold. Um, and it's what's going to make this into the, the most important contest um, for the United States in the coming decades. I also just wrote a book, um, which has been pretty widely read now, um, and it's called China's Vision of Victory. And it lays out the entire picture of Chinese global stri uh, grand strategy, from the economics piece, to the military side, to the ambitions and technology, using, using all the primary sources that I've been studying over the years um, that explain the rise of China. Admiral Scott Swift, um, the commander of Pacific Fleet, wrote the introduction about the need for a new American grand strategy in a time of U.S.-China competition. So that alone is worth reading. Another yep. guest of the podcast. We That's right. Mentioned him oh, in our That's right. Yeah. Wrote three proceedings articles for us in 2018, the, uh, February, I think, February, March, and May of 2018. We had him on the podcast last year. Uh, yeah, and he, and he also was a uh, a guest at a uh, conference that the Naval Institute ran here at the Naval Academy in October last year talking about China's rise. Uh, and we had uh, Graham Allison of Harvard talking about the Thucydides trap. So we'll get into that conversation here in a, in a few minutes. So early in the article, you mentioned the uh, head of the PLA Navy, Admiral Lu Huaqing. You can, you know, you can uh, correct my pronunciation there. But under um, Premier Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, this admiral established a vision for China as a maritime power. And you have three dates here that you mentioned on page 64, by, by 2000, by 2020, and by 2050. Tell the audience a little bit about what, China, what China's goals are as a naval power at those three uh, stepping stones. 
Absolutely. I mean, those are, um, you know, in the 80s, as China was beginning to to enter into the global economy, um, Chinese military strategists realized that they were going to be dependent on sea lines of communication, and they would have to essentially begin to defend that um, those vulnerabilities. So things like the situation in Malacca, the Strait of Malacca, um, other um, pieces of China's geographic vulnerabilities began to come into view. And Admiral Liu Huaqing is somebody who, who essentially began this maximalist vision of Chinese naval power. And here I've drawn on, on several things laid out by Bud Cole um, and that are generally agreed upon as, as um, Admiral Liu Huaqing's vision. And that was that in 2000, China, uh, China's Navy would be capable of exerting sea control in the first island chain. So they had this island chain strategy, of course, which derives from the U.S., vision of the Pacific, but um, 2000, they would control the first island chain, 2020, they could control the second island chain, and by 2050, they would be, you know, all over the world operating carrier battle groups, and of course, that's a, a vision that comes from technology of the 20th century, so today, I think that's, that's changed quite a bit. I mean, a carrier may not be the most important system out into the 2050s, but China today does want as Xi Jinping has said, to have the world, you know, world-class military um, by the mid-century, essentially, as the dominant um, military power in the world. Have they succeeded in in reaching those goals, or are they behind a little bit? Where where are they, where do they stand? No, they have. We're about to um, enter the year 2020. I mean, they certainly do not control um, the second island chain out to out to Guam and the Marshalls and um, Korelsky and all that, as they've uh, imagined here. On the other hand, what they've done in the South China Sea allows them, um, you know, a position from which to exert um, sea power much more broadly. And other things, the evolution of these goals is very important. I mean, back then, they were looking at their maritime periphery. Today, they're looking at a much broader global picture. And the South China Sea, as I explained um, later in the article and also more extensively in my book, China's Vision of Victory, um, the South China Sea is really a staging point. It's part of the Belt and Road as a military system. I mean, China's economic strategists envision three blue economic corridors, as they explain it. One is the Northern Sea Route. The other is the Indian Ocean Corridor. And the third is the one that links South China Sea to the South Pacific in Oceania. So they, um, back when Admiral Liu Ha-Ching was looking at this in the 80s, it was not yet a global vision geographically, even if it was a global vision sort of in a, in a vague concept of 2050 global sea power. Today, that geography actually has taken shape across the Belt and Road. That's where they want to exert power. So what are they doing in terms of their industrial base and growing their fleet that we're not? How are they ascended in ways that we are not? Um, I think the thing that we really have to be concerned about um, with China is their ability to convert um, a massive industrial base into production of platforms. I mean, their ability to pump out um, ships and, and hardware um, could be extraordinary. I mean, there are others who've done you know, very extensive work on Chinese naval shipbuilding, like Andrew Erickson, I'm sure is a, a frequent guest, um, and a very knowledgeable people that are looking at all of this. And the other side of it is civil military fusion, which envisions um, the coupling of their civilian industrial base and their military industrial base. So when you look at things in, in the private sector, such as the potential merger between CSSC and CISC, I believe, it would turn it into the largest civilian shipping um, you know, conglomerate in the world. I mean, those sorts of things could be converted, you know, and add to that that larger um, 
you know, base from which they can pump out um, military platforms. I mean, the other side of it, of course, would be the expanded Marine Corps, their emphasis on um, littoral combat ships now and amphibious platforms, much of which appears to be to do with the Taiwan scenario, but also potentially to project power um, throughout the Indo-Pacific and into the Indian Ocean. And then, you know, revising their command and control structure and sort of increasing their ability to do joint force, um, you know, this is all them preparing to be a much more lethal um, force. So they're still catching up to us, but it's the, it's really the question of volume I and mean, what kind of volume can they create versus the United States and our allies. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the industrial base. We had Salvatore Mercagliano on the show last week talking about his article that's just before yours in the August issue to be a modern maritime power. And he also brought up that merger of those two largest Chinese shipyards, the China Shipbuilding Industry Corporation and China State Shipbuilding to be the largest conglomerate for shipbuilding and and, and the uh, economies of scale advantage that that gives. And even though building commercial ships is not the same as building destroyers and uh, cruisers and, and aircraft carriers, there is still uh, economies of scale to come from being a country that ch- churns out you know massive numbers of ships, both uh, military ships and and commercial ships. So interesting uh, uh, parallels between your two articles there. Mm-hmm. Um, you 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 uh, in your article you talk quite a bit about how uh, as China rebounded from the century of humiliation and the founding of the People's Republic in 1949, how Mao Zedong had to uh, you know get control of the landmass that is China and looking. Uh, westward at the ge- geographic bastions, if you would, that's my word, not the word mm-hmm. that you use. Um, talk about that and then your article as it, as China has developed as a maritime power, as a sea power, and as a commercial power, now is looking to the east and looking out to sea, looking at blue territory. Um, contra- compare and contrast those, the, 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 um, the strategic geography in Mao's mind compared to the strategic geography now in Xi Jinping's mind. Right. I mean, I think this is really the most interesting evolution of China from a regional power to a global power. Um, We make the mistake of looking at China today as a regional power in a security sense, which even though they're confined to the region in a certain way, um, their sense of the world's geography is changing enormously. And the Belt and Road is the clearest expression of that as they become a global um, economic power, you know, second to none other than ourselves. Um, but the military geography of Mao Zedong, and this was inherited from Chiang Kai-shek, is a, a, a place in which there were what Chiang Kai-shek called six strategic fortresses. And what those fortresses were, were Taiwan, the Pescadores, what he called the four northeastern provinces, so Manchuria, Inner and Outer Mongolia, Xinjiang, and Tibet. So it was really the geography of the Chinese empire as it existed sort of on and off for, you know, centuries, essentially. And and Mao basically went in and said, we're going to consolidate all that territory. And the first thing he did was send an army into Tibet. I mean, he sends forces into Korea to sort of deal with that. He sends cycles, you know, um, veterans from the Korean Wars into um, Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And he's dealing with his peripheries, so sort of consolidating the imperial frontiers or the, the boundaries of the classic Chinese empire. Now, today, those boundaries are essentially secure, even though it appears in China's military strategies that there's a priority on, you know, anti-separatist movements, as they call it. Um, And even though uh, Taiwan remains, um, you know, in in a different situation. However, the the broader geography from that base 
um, is now expanding into this global picture, which, again, when we look at the Belt and Road for what it is, which is basically a strategy that would repurpose the whole of the Eurasian, African, Indian Ocean, Australian supercontinental cluster, I mean, really the entire world other than the United States, um, and turn that into an economic community with China as the center. Um, you know, that's the geography through which China looks at this whole picture today. And what's happening next is they're building this military into this to, um, as they call it in their own words, to safeguard the security of their overseas interests. Um, you know, so what that means is ultimately projecting power throughout the Belt and Road system. And we see that anyway with exercises with Russia and Pakistan from the Arabian Sea and the Persian Gulf um, to, you know, the Sea of Japan and the Mediterranean. And they were exercising all over the world with those two places whom they call strategic partners. Um, and then, you know, they're thinking even more ambitiously at this point. I mean, they've included Latin Americans, the Belt and Road. Um, their space programs are now affiliated with the Belt and Road. I mean, they envision moon missions and Mars missions that are meant to take them to the next frontier in space. Um, so it's, it's quite a global vision. Um, it's certainly a militarized vision when you get into um, what the overseas interests appear to be and how they appear to want to protect them. And what I decided to do in the article was to sort of um, take the analogy of the six strategic fortresses of um, Mao's China and Chiang Kai-shek's China and apply that to the emerging geography of the Belt and Road. And it's like, what are the places where China would like to exert power if they achieve their vision? And their ultimate vision, um, as they express it, is by 2049, the centennial of the founding of the People's Republic of China, they would become the dominant power in the world. So if they actually achieve that, if they surpass the United States, if they you know, build the Belt and Road and, and, the, and made in China 2025 and they complete their military modernization program, what happens next? Let, let's go through those six sure. new fortresses that you're talking about very quickly. So those six fortresses, the way I would look at it, is the West Pacific Island chains. I mean, for a long time, they've wanted to throw the U.S. out of the Pacific. Mao's pretty clear about that in the 50s. And that's a long-term Chinese vision. Um, weakening or jettisoning American power in the Pacific. The Indian Ocean, I mean, that's where they're most vulnerable, and it's where they're going to have to build the most influence. Australia, I think Australia is really what holds the Indo-Pacific together. So they would want to weaken um, American influence there and potentially to exert um, overwhelming influence in Australia over time. Um, then Africa, I mean, Africa in many ways is the resource base for the rise of the Chinese empire. I mean, you know, so much of their um, commodities and, and, you know, all the real foundational pieces come from there. So being able to exert power in Africa. Um, Europe, I mean, Europe um, is really what the Belt and Road is about in many ways. It's about the integration of Europe and China, um, Europe and Asia, with China as the center. So they would not want any kind of European rival to their power. Um, and then the South Pacific. I mean, this complicates American approaches to the island chains, um, and they you know, could probably use the South Pacific to keep us out and keep us in our hemisphere um, you know, and out of the Eurasian continent. And then the U.S. and, and North America would essentially be be um, not only isolated on its own, but ultimately um, surrounded and encircled. I mean, they fear us encircling them. But when you look at the geography of the Belt and Road, and even including, as they do, Latin America and the Belt and Road, it's ultimately should come to full fruition over 30, 40 years. Um, an encirclement project, as much as anything, it's turning the tides on us. And if they are able to do this in any way, shape, or form, it's simply about exerting um, the sheer size of, of um, China and its industrial potential and economic potential and military potential um, as the dominant force in world affairs, being able to tie everything back to that um, with, with that entity as the, the dominant force. 
Jonathan, I want to go back. So you've said a couple of times now that uh, China's goal, their strategic goal by 2049 to be the dominant power of the world. So two questions for you on that. One is, as they grade their own homework, you know, they must have intermittent steps and goals along the way to get to 2049. That's, you know, 30 years from now, right? How, how do they assess how they're doing in getting to that goal? And then the second question I have for you is about the limits. What are the things that are going to, that, that could potentially stop them from achieving that goal? Right. I mean, they have a series of intermediate timeframes. I mean, one is 2021, the other is 2035. And the major strategies that underpin that vision are, you know, the Belt and Road Made in China 2025, the Military Modernization Program. I mean, these are all um, projects that sort of um, track that time frame and are expressed sort of as pieces of the same picture. So the whole thing is that path to the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And, um, you know, how they assess this stuff, I think, is still unclear. I mean, we don't necessarily know how China looks at its own progress. But what I think matters, um, particularly in the present moment, um, as U.S.-China relations are are taking a new turn, is for, for a long time they called the period that we're in now the period of strategic opportunity. And that was essentially from 2000 to 2020. And that was the time, I think, in which they thought that, you know, in sort of a communist phrase, the, the general world situation would be favorable to China, i.e. China would rise unimpeded. You know, there wouldn't be a lot of pushback. Um, and they could essentially, you know, dream these grand visions and grand plans. And, and a lot of the world would actually go along with them. I mean, the Belt and Road Conference, which had, um, you know, 60 countries that had everybody from the chancellor, the you know, British chancellor, the exchequer there, you know, rooting for it to Vladimir Putin saying it's going to happen. I mean, those sorts of things that they could get, in a sense, get away with, um, you know, in world affairs and present themselves as this leader in a benign way. I think that's all changing now. And the biggest thing that will you know, complicate this for them is as the world, and I think this starts with the United States, begins to realize that we may not want this vision for the future. I mean, the other half of it is something they call the community of common destiny for mankind. That's what all of this is meant to culminate in, is, you know, they create this new world order with China at the center and all the other countries essentially subservient to China. Um, they call it the community of common destiny for mankind. So, you know, I mean, the, the U.S. Is, is pushing back on, on, on all of this. I think our relationship with China is going through an awakening where we realize um, how dangerous their ambitions are. And then if we can rally all the allies and many other nations, you know, particularly the world's democracies, um, to our side to, to um, prevent this all from happening, well, that will certainly change the game for China. And we have not yet seen how they will behave as, um, you know, the tide is not so easy as it has been. So how are we postured? There's a lot of current events about the trade war and, uh, you know, China's in the news quite a bit. How is what you're saying meshing against our foreign policy towards China at this time? Are we doing it right or are we falling into their hands? What, what do you think? I think we're finding our footing in our foreign policy. I mean, we have to remember that for 40 years, we've basically chosen to engage with China initially as a Cold War partner, and then after that as a market and place in which you could have essentially labor arbitrage. Um, so all of that has, you know, led to the strategy of engage and hedge, i.e. we engage commercially, economically, build our trade relations, and then we make sure that the military balance doesn't tip against us. Now, the problem with that is it really amounts to funding an arms race against ourselves. We thought that the Chinese Communist Party would liberalize sort of 
you know, the country would sort of enter the community of nations as a partner to the United States. Um, and instead, we've wound up in this position where that's clearly not their intention. Um, and we have to start pulling back on all of that. So um, I think you look at something like the trade war, which I'm speaking about frequently, um, you know, on TV and in economic forums. I think one has to look at that as the beginning of the economic piece to U.S.-China competition. But it also has to exist in service to the larger national security piece, which is ultimately when you're talking about a country that wants to surpass us and replace us as the dominant power in the world, that's not something you want to help along. I mean, we're going to have to push back against that. We're going to have to revise our trading relationship. We're going to have to build our um, economic relations with our partners and allies and also block their way to increase military power. I mean, they're trying to turn all their economic um, potential into a military that can is designed, um, you know, to, to, you know, counter the United States at the very least. So, you know, right now we're still contributing to all of that in our, you know, through much of our um, economic engagement. I think all of that is what has to be revised. But so, I still so think we're fine. Give us a primer on how we got here, you know, because on the political trail and the sound bites on, on broadcast uh, television, um, we hear about, you know, they've devalued their currency, they've done this, they haven't played fair, et cetera, et cetera. So, how about a quick history of how we got where we are? The decisions on the U.S. side, you know, began with the opening to China in the Cold War, where, you know, having them as a partner against Russia, I mean, flipping them, I mean, they were the, the wild card, essentially, that we could pull off and start to split the communist world. I mean, they'd already split themselves. I mean, that put us in a better position. But then we let it run for way too long. And what happened, obviously, after the Cold War was our businesses went in, you know, looking for um, economic advantages and, and ultimately building into this um, trading relationship and supply chain relationship. And, and the, you know, the Chinese market grew and that was enticing everybody. And all of that kept us into this uh, mode of engagement um, for way too long and without questioning, without knowing or even asking on some level um, what were really the intentions of this place with which we were engaged and, with, and whom we were empowering. So, you know, as that all comes to light, um, you know, this, these are the tough questions now for everybody who's, who's you know, built supply chains into China for so long. I mean, we've got 600 billion trade. Obviously, it's a, it's a lopsided relationship um, where, where they, um, you know, we buy far more from them than they do from us. But, um, you know, this is still sort of servicing their, their rise and therefore their ambitions. So I think that's the, the part that we've got to start um, looking at much more carefully. And, and the trade war is driving that right now. And this idea that we could bring them to the table by putting tariffs on them and then essentially get what we wanted, because our engagement was not without rules. We invited them into the WTO. We invited them to all kinds of other international bodies, you know, essentially asking that they abide by the rules of these organizations. Of course, they didn't. Um, what they did do was begin to do forced joint ventures that would mean that all of our technology would be transferred, you know, technology from our companies and other countries' companies would be transferred to China's companies. I mean, they went from a country that in 1980 was, you know, something like 90% rural to a country that now produces all kinds of advanced military technology and has globalizing corporations. Now, that is not because they invented it all. It's because they're reverse engineering the American superpower um, based on engagement with the United States. So that's that's what we've that's where we brought ourselves. And the question is, what do we do from here? So what about the investment piece? You know, we hear rumors that uh, the Chinese own Budweiser and mm. Universal Studios and so forth and so on. Where does that fit into what you're talking about in terms of the way this has evolved? I think, I mean, one of the key concerns there is on one hand, you know, where do you have American companies 
getting unwittingly involved in things like civil military fusion. I mean, General Electric, for example, has a joint venture um, with with AVIC, so China's leading um, you know, military aerospace company, and they're building advanced avionics. You know, that's meant to be for COMAC, their civilian airliner. But really, I mean, with civil military fusion going on and with the fact that the PLA is essentially a military organization, advanced avionics would easily wind up um, contributing to the advancement of the Chinese military. I mean, just to take one example, there are many examples. And then when you look at China's engagement in Hollywood, I think there's a great example of, um, you know, Top Gun Maverick, which, you know, it, it went all around the Internet. The fact that they changed the patch on the back of Tom Cruise's jacket, which used to include Taiwan and Japan, doesn't include them anymore. Now, why is that significant? Because Tencent, one of China's top tech and media companies, is one of the funders behind the movie. Now, Tencent itself, several years ago, um, in the 70s, you know, in, in 2015 or something, released a video of the Chinese Navy sinking the U.S. Navy, sinking a carrier battle group. So that's the same company that's funding Top Gun Maverick. And you don't have to. So these love these pieces of influence, you know, that are happening in the United States and in many other countries. In, in many ways, they're using our economic engagement also to influence our perceptions of China. And that's been very dangerous because it has, you know, really cost us many years in terms of waking up to the problem that China really presents. Yeah. So if I'm Paramount, do I care? Is I mean, this is the only way the movie gets made. You know, what, what, how do we push back against this? I think that, you know, you could begin, I mean, there, there, the dimensions to the U.S.-China economic relationship include, you know, on one hand, it's, it's energy and agriculture. I mean, that seems benign, except that they want to use those things against us, um, you know, when they see it as leverage. Um, you know, the, 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 anything that increases their sort of industrial potential and their military potential, you know, that should be, um, you know, I think we should do away with those kinds of engagements and also not just in the United States, but across the allies. And then when it comes to the ways in which they influence our society, I think, um, you know, it's, it, I, I would not have Tencent um, funding, you know, Top Gun Maverick. I mean, find the money somewhere else. A lot of this is, you know, it's not that the money can't be found. It's just that it's a little easier sometimes coming from China and often because there is this um, possibility that they can get more than what they're paying for by also bringing in political influence. Yeah, in uh, I remember in 2009, I was working at the U.S. Pacific Command. Uh, Admiral Willard took over as the commander, and one of the first things that he had the, the the team overall try to do was he wanted to know what China's strategy was towards the U.S. And that was actually fairly, I wouldn't say easy to define, but it was knowable, right? But then he asked the harder question, which was, what's the U.S. strategy towards China? And there was no U.S.-China strategy, right? There mm -hmm. were bits and pieces of this and that, and the president said this, and a, and a secretary of state over two different administrations had said these four or five things. And and so we um, we looked at all of that, uh, you know, writings and speaking uh, speeches of, uh, of U.S. leaders and bits and pieces of U.S., you know, national security strategies and, and military strategies over several different administrations and boiled it down to a bumper sticker that you used a couple of minutes ago and you said, engage but hedge. And, mm -hmm. and so we, you know, that was what we determined. This is, you know, Admiral, if you had to boil it down into, into a bumper sticker, the U.S. strategy towards <laughs> China is in, in 2009 was engage but hedge. And people back in the Pentagon went berserk. You can't say hedge. You can't say hedge. Well, you know, that was because at that time, the, 
the predominant logic, as you pointed out, Jonathan, a minute ago, is is that for 40 years, we had this um, strategy that we can get China to become a a participant, a part of the the post-Westphalian, post-World War II world order, right? We'll we'll pull China in. They'll be they will play by the rules. They'll play by you know WTO rules. They'll play by uh, the rules written predominantly by the U.S. and its allies after World War II, and that has not been the case, right? So it took a few years there, uh, and particularly as as the U.S. in 2009, 10, 11 was you know still engaged in two land wars in Asia, South Asia, Southwest Asia. Uh, nobody in the, you know, nobody had the bandwidth back in, in OSD, et cetera, and probably in the Obama administration to really think about, oh my God, what are we going to do about China as a global hegemon, as a global competitor? And so that's, uh, I think you, you, you pointed out very nicely there that this is a, uh, it's a strategy that's evolving, right? We're trying to get, we're getting our feet underneath us as we realize, oh my God, no, this is, we, we actually have to push back in a lot of different ways. And, uh, I like the point that, um, uh, you bring out in your article, uh, right at the end, uh, there was a Stratcom deterrence symposium and somebody asked if we wanted to prevent Chinese control of the South China Sea, it was probably something we had to do 20 years ago. So what are the things that we should be doing now uh, to get ahead of where, uh, you know, where we, where we want to be in 2049, not where, where the Chinese want to be in 2049? Well, I think that's exactly what we've got to do now. I mean, this is really, it's time for American grand strategy. Um, you know, we're going to need a comprehensive strategy for China, but we're also going to need a comprehensive strategy as the United States of America. I mean, where do we want to wind up? We should be looking first, um, you know, at the horizon of the year 2030. I mean, that's when this contest really takes shape. I mean, if China surpasses us economically in the next decade, which many thinks, many people think is going to happen, then we're going to be in a world where their military budgets are, you know, could be equal to ours. I mean, they're, they're, you know, one certain, um, emerging technology contest. I mean, it will be very bad. So we want to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, and then we want to stage out towards 2040 and 50. And it's, and it's really just working with the trends of the future. I mean, how do we take the trends of the future and make sure that we are gaining the best advantages we possibly can? Um, as a society, as an economy, as a military, and how do you work that all together so that you're maximizing American power? I mean, we still are the superpower. We have to remember this. I mean, it is us that are the $20 trillion economy. Um, you know, China's only 14 right now. It's us that has a globally, um, you know, experienced and operable military, not China. They don't have that. They want that. Um, and it's us that attracts all the world's talent. That's not China. They don't have that. Um, they might want that. So we have so many things to work with that essentially we just have to preserve our advantages and widen our advantages over China, especially by engaging with our alliances, which in many ways is the most important and hopefully durable piece of the American system before we invited the authoritarian nations into it after the Cold War. Um, you know, we still have all these great allies that I think will help us retain the balance um, in the Pacific and in the Atlantic. Um, we have to integrate our Atlantic and European, or rather our European and Asian alliances, I think, so that we're all looking at this in the same way. Um, when it comes to China's vulnerabilities, I mean, they're in the South China Sea, but they're not yet in the Indian Ocean. That's where they want to be. They're not yet around the South Pacific. That's where they want to be. Don't let them get there. Um, and then on the economic side, which is incredibly important, we have to make sure that we are not enabling the ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, that starts with certain amounts of disengagement that make sure that they are not um, gaining, excuse me, um, un, they're not gaining um, unnecessary advantages. 
So the, the president sent a tweet a couple of days ago that got a lot of attention um, about it. You know, I hereby order American companies to stop doing business with China. Um, there's some argument as to the legality of that. But is he on to something there in terms of the grand strategy? Uh, another way to put it is, should Wall Street wean itself of Chinese investment? Well, I think what you've got to, you know, all these companies went into China for the t last 20 years as though there was no political risk, really. And that was such a huge mistake. So um, realizing that instead, because of this large strategic failure, it's becoming one of the riskiest places there is, despite its market opportunities. I mean, people are going to have to find, they should find alternatives. I mean, they, you know, and that's going to, I think, you know, take shape differently across different industries. I mean, you know, on, on one level, sell them all the Coca-Cola and soybeans that we can, when we can. On the other hand, do we need to be um, enabling their advanced aerospace in any way, shape or form? No. So, so revising all of that is, is important. Um, American companies, you know, our Fortune 1000, I mean, the 1000 top companies in America are the, um, it's two thirds of the U.S. economy. So we need a private, um, excuse me, we need our private sector to understand the situation very well and to start making decisions that are better for the long-term health of the United States and not simply good for short-term profits. That also means getting Wall Street on board because Wall Street's role in corporate decision-making, of course, influences them towards the short-term and not towards the long-term. So that's got to change. Um, you know, how Congress and, and, and the White House deal with that, set parameters for what businesses can and cannot do with our dedicated adversary is, I think, the next phase of policymaking. But at the same time, we want to do this in such a way where it will bring greater prosperity to the United States, not necessarily, you know, not weaken us, um, but, I mean, in the long run, we're going to be weakened beyond, uh, you know, our imaginations, I think, by letting engagement go on with this, uh, you know, very dangerous uh, country. However, um, right now we might have to make small sacrifices in order to rebuild a more stable world. Hey, Jonathan, um, much has been made in the news about uh, sort of an alliance growing between China and Russia. Uh, do you see that as a as a realistic thing? I mean, are, are China and Russia, are Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin, are they natural allies or are they just friends of convenience? And what do you think uh, China's, you know, uh, territorial ambitions are towards the, the Russian Far East? I think they're more compatible than we think, and that's particularly because the door is closed in the West, essentially. Um, we probably do want to position for a long-term opening to Russia. Um, I mean, if we could flip Russia back into the Western camp over the next 10 years or so, I don't think Putin makes that possible, but maybe something after him. Um, you know, that would be good. I mean, they did not get along in the Cold War, but they did get together for long enough to cause us quite a bit of trouble in the 1950s. So, you know, now we're sort of back to that. I think I would look at it more in terms of what are they doing that's actually genuinely making them um, closer partners in practical terms. And if they begin collaborating on military systems that have long-term value, um, you know, the, the nature of their exercises is they get more sort of interoperable focused as opposed to just, you know, going out there to sail alongside each other. I mean, all of these things that we can monitor that, that would show us um, how deep the relationship really is, um, you know, we'll have to we'll have to watch all that and make sure that we don't let them get too close. Because, yeah, in the end, I mean, Russia, China is using Russia. I mean, Russia has become a kind of um, military appendage to the rise of China. Um, you know, their, their military and intelligence chiefs are meeting, um, you know, pretty regularly. No doubt they're discussing, as they did in the Cold War, their shared... Um, 
you know, confrontation of the United States. I mean, back in, in the early Cold War, when Stalin said to Mao Zedong, you take Asia, I'll take Europe. Um, are you ready? Let's go. I mean, that's probably a similar type of thing as uh, what's going on here today. So, you know, we want to make sure that that doesn't go too far. Um, Russia, it's a very bad choice um, for Russia to, to enable the rise of China. I mean, it's a country that will not respect their interests in the long run, and that includes in the Far East. So just to circle back what you were talking about, because you made a good point about Coca-Cola and, and uh, soybeans. soybeans are one thing, and their involvement in Hollywood is one thing, but their involvement in aerospace and tech is something else altogether. So already, already in a dangerous place, I mean, is there a bomb that's already there that we need to dismantle, or do we need to stop building the bomb, to use very facile analogies here? I think that's a good way to put it. I, I think it may be both, and we're going to have to be very, um, you know, I, I don't know um, to, to what extent. I don't know that anyone's really assessed this all the way down to its roots and, and filled out the entire picture. But, yes, we don't want to build their capacity any further, and we also want to see what we can do to walk back what's already been created. And there's so much of China's, um, you know, tech and, and advanced industry that depends on us. And you can see that with Huawei, for example, which depends um, entirely on U.S. semiconductors. Now, the question there, the calculus is, if you cut them off from, from, from our semiconductor companies, then they're going to move as quickly as they can towards, um, you know, doing it themselves, particularly through all the training that many of their engineers have received in, throughout the world. Um, so, so you have to play that balance, too. It's just like, to, how do you sequence this? How do you um, pace yourselves in in essentially slow, you know, so that you keep our, you keep the United States ahead of them, but at the same time, um, you know, don't create too much incentive for them to, to try anything they can to, to leapfrog us. I think they're already thinking that way, but they still need us in certain ways. So, so we have to stage this in such a way that it's effective towards an end state as opposed to just an overreaction or a quick reaction. Jonathan, your book is called China's Vision of Victory. So we've talked about a lot of this already, that, you know, 2049, the great rejuvenation of China. Uh, tell us, you know, is there, are there one or two things in China's vision of victory that our listeners may not know yet? I think the thing that, you know, once you've got, I mean, what the book does is it brings together all the primary evidence, all the strategy documents, all the speeches, all the, you know, historical um, you know, evidence that explains what the true end state and ambition really is. Um, and it lets the reader go through that in just a three-day read. Um, and it, it makes it, it blows a lot of minds, <laughs> is what I found. I mean, people are very amazed um, by the things they hear, and it's just letting the Communist Party speak for itself, essentially. Um, and I think that, you know, once you've gotten through things like the, the major strategies that we're aware of, um, the community of common destiny for mankind is the thing that I found most fascinating in studying um, the Communist Party's worldview. And the, the way in which it envisions sort of an, an expansion and perfection of the Chinese security state, the way that it sort of reconstitutes China's position in the early pre-modern world order with China as the, the center of all nations with, with um, you know, vassals around it and such, um, you know, I thought had this analogy to, to the entire failure that we made in engaging with China, which was really the Kissingerian school of thought, which saw, I mean, Kissinger's um, diplomacy, his training as a historian was all Westphalian, and his statecraft was Westphalian. And Westphalia essentially meant 
um, you know, that you had. I mean, it was an order that emerged in, emerged in Europe where you had states of relatively equal power competing and finding essentially a way to live together. Whereas China, as John K. Fairbank pointed out, never existed in Westphalian system. It existed in the system of superordination and subordination, i.e. it was the largest thing in the known world and everything else lived under it or around it, but essentially it, unable to challenge China for power. And the idea that the community of common destiny is potentially a return to that kind of system, um, I think shows us why we've gotten this game so wrong um, from the start. I don't think I could pick a better topic for the 100th episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, what a great example that victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Thank you for coming on the <laughs> podcast today, and uh, uh, thanks for writing for Proceedings, Jonathan. Well, thank you all so much. It's an honor to be here.